There it goes, deep into center field, way, way back goes Matty Alou, and that ball is in Astro orbit. And the little dynamo, the toy cannon, now has 76 runs batted into the year. What a shot. Hey everybody, this is Vic from Toy Cannon Cannon with a little reminder that our new structure is we're dropping individual canonizations on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and then the full-length pod with all three of those drops on Fridays. So here we've got the second part of our sixth episode, which is our guest Jimmy Arvan coming on to talk about a century-old college football coach who could be considered the archetypal Bill Belichick. Hope you enjoy it. In 1908, a new coach by the name of Gil Doby takes over the Washington Husky football program. So the longest winning streak to ever be recorded in the history of college football belongs to the Oklahoma Sooners, which isn't that surprising. Um, And there are 47 consecutive wins under coach Bud Wilkinson between the years 1953 and 1957 remains one of the most impressive feats to ever have been accomplished in the sport and is a testament to the prestige and respect the program has developed over its storied existence. Like, you would expect a team like Oklahoma to hold that record. However, the second-place program on this list is one that certainly has a storied past in college football, but is one that might not come to mind when discussing, like, the upper echelon of college football programs. Nonetheless, the University of Washington Huskies, between 1908 and 1914, compiled a record of 39-0. and Not only did they win, but they won big with lopsided victories such as 100 to nothing over Whitworth, 72 to nothing over Cal, 99 to nothing over Warden, and 81 to nothing over the Rainier Valley Agricultural College. Cal in Cal. that series. Yes, like the Cal, Cal Golden Berkeley. Bears. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I feel like you buried the lead there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so I'll get to the I'll get to that kind of aspect of the story. UW is one of the most successful independent collegiate programs in the country at the time, and most of the country didn't really take notice because they were on the West Coast. But this early success laid the groundwork for the development of a program that now has one of the most passionate fan bases and vibrant game day scenes in the entire country. And it was all sparked by a man with the nickname Gloomy Gill. Robert Gilmore Gill Doby was born on January 1st, 1879 in Hastings, Minnesota. He was an orphan by the age of eight, and he was quickly taught to fend for himself and developed a remarkable work ethic and a perfectionist hell-bent pursuit of success. He graduated high school at the age of 21, and at the University of Minnesota served as the quarterback for the program's first Big Ten championship while earning a degree in law. Following his graduation, he immediately began his coaching career, first at Southside High in Minneapolis, and then at the North Dakota Agricultural College, which is now North Dakota State, from 1906 to 1907. He never lost a game at both spots, and in 1908 was hired to become the head coach at the University of Washington on an annual salary of $1,200, which was a lot for a coach at the time. And his coaching style once he arrived at the university was, to say the least, unique. He was known for lambasting his players even following great performances. He once made his squad run 20 laps around the field following a 70 to nothing victory and berated them following a 90 to nothing finish for not putting up 100 points. He closed his practices to students and only allowed them to watch when they turned out in great numbers. Like he would only allow students to watch if a ton of them came out. He frequently removed players from his team for violations of his stringent rules and earned the ire of sports writers, faculty, and even the mayor of Seattle with his abrasive personality. He wore a trench coat, he smoked cigars, and was generally as disagreeable as they come. But man, did the guy win. 
Over the course of his tenure at Washington, his teams never lost a game. Across a span of eight seasons, the Huskies compiled a record of 59-0-3, featuring that 40-game win streak that I mentioned earlier. They absolutely obliterated teams, putting up scores that seem impossible even given the level of competition. And while they did regularly play high schools in exceedingly small programs, they regularly trounced bigger West Coast programs like Oregon, Oregon State, Cal, and Washington State that had football programs at the time. And these successes earned him a tremendous amount of respect around the university in the Seattle area. Despite his brutal coaching style, his players worshipped him. From UW's quarterback at the time, Wee Coyle, there were no smiles, no handshakes, no slaps on the back. Nothing but a pair of black eyes coldly peering out of a dark face. Many of the players thought about leaving. This tall glob of gloom couldn't tell us what to do. But when it came to depart, something besides the love of our homes, our sweethearts, and our friends kept us on the right track. It was the spell of Gil Doby. At the end of four weeks of the hardest kind of practice, we were eating out of his hand. Like That's a direct quote from one of his players in a biography that was later written about him. He described this guy as a student of psychology who understood men and would go right up to the breaking point and then leave you out on a limb. Seattle Times once wrote, his pessimism is not voice for the assimilation of the public, but it is for the members of his football squad alone. He was known for his colorful use of language, once calling one of his teams the dumbest, clumsiest, rankest collection of so-called football excuses I've ever seen. And they went undefeated. They'd never lost a game. (laughs) Needless to say, this guy is one of the greatest coaches of all time. And he did this at each of his spots. Um, He eventually left Washington, and that's definitely a story that needs to be told. But he went on to coach at Navy, where he compiled a record of 17-3 and over three seasons. And then he went on to coach at Cornell for 15 years. He coached the Cornell program for 15 years. From 19 to 21 and to 1923, they didn't lose a game either. He compiled an 82-36-7 record at Cornell and then finished his career at Boston College, where he went 16-6-5. Overall, he had a 780 career winning percentage going 180-45-15 all time. And the most points his team ever gave up across an entire season was 20. Over the course of an entire season, his teams yes. never gave up more than 20 points across wow. the entire Wow. Like his, his teams were dominant. The only years when they when his teams really weren't good were his final two years at Cornell. Otherwise, he was dominant. And he was recognized as a charter member of the College Football Hall of Fame. He was elected in 1951. And he was a name that I honestly had never heard of before this. But he is genuinely one of the oldest, one of the greatest coaches of all time that he's never really mentioned in those conversations yeah you hear all the time about you know John Heisman and, and Newt Rockney and people like that but Gil Doby I feel like I've I has never has never come up why do you think that is is it just because he didn't coach at Notre Dame most things that I read said that yeah it was mostly because Washington at the time wasn't a very high profile location to be at And even though he did a lot of good for the school, it wasn't really recognized on a national scale. He really gained his reputation while at Cornell. Like the coach that he took over for at Cornell was Pop Warner, who he is generally compared to. You know, Pop Warner was coaching at this time, but the guy that nobody talks about is Gil Doby, who was also, you know, kind of revolutionary in the same way that Pop Warner was. So once people started to kind of recognize his legacy at Cornell, they looked back at his career at Washington and said, like, you know, that's incredible to spend eight years at a school and never lose a game. But the most remarkable thing is that he was fired. He didn't leave Washington. He was fired. How? Players loved him. Like, even though he was a hard ass, like, 
people loved to come play for him. Yeah. So after the 1915 season, he suddenly resigned, which a lot of people were disappointed by, including the school's administration. The school's president at the time, Henry Suzalo, held this massive luncheon in his honor. He was given tons of gifts. People begged him not to leave. But so he went on this pilgrimage to California. He visited his, visited his sisters. And then on his way back to his home, he stopped in Seattle again just to basically say hi. And alumni and the administration basically begged him to return for another season. And he said yes. And so he stayed. They got him back for the 1916 season. And it started out just like how every other season had before. They went undefeated. They didn't lose games. And everybody was like, great, we got him back. And he's here to stay. Then, as there always seems to be in college football nowadays, there was a scandal. And it had to do with academics, which is such a problem now in college football. And this was the original academic scandal in college football. And it involved a really highly touted defensive player named Phil Grimm. But he was one of a few players on the Washington squad that was enrolled in the National Guard at the same time. So he was playing football, he was a full-time student, and he was a part of the National Guard. So he would be shuttled back and forth between Tacoma, where the base was, and the university. And it was as hard as it sounded. Like he actually was removed from the team at one point in September because Dobie didn't think he was honoring his commitment to the football team enough. He eventually found his way back onto the team, mostly because of his talent in October. But he was discovered that he had cheated on a history exam. And this obviously was not taken lightly by the faculty at the University of Washington. And he was suspended from November 20th, 1916 to December 1st, 1917, over a year's worth of suspension. But the significance of this was that it was the day before the Thanksgiving season finale against those formidable Cal Golden Bears. And the student populace and the team was livid. They were like, how could you do this? How could you start the suspension a day before the game? Why not just push it back and have the suspension start at the end of the season and he'll sit out the next season? And the players went on a strike. They were so mad that they went on a strike. And so they didn't practice for two days. And Dobie took their side. He was like, there's no other guy on this team to play the position that Bill Grimm was supposed to. And so he said, if they don't want to play, I'm not going to make them play. Having known this Gil Dobie guy for all of five minutes, that doesn't seem like the Gil I know. The one aspect that always rubbed people the wrong way about this guy, about Gil Dobie, though, is that he really didn't care about school. Really? He earned the dislike of some of the faculty members because he made so much more money than them and generally disparaged the idea of school and expected his football players to put football first. Wow, this guy's like the anti-Lou Holtz. Yeah, he really did not expect them to perform in the classroom. Yeah, it's a line of thinking way, way before his time. Because, like, we kind of take that for granted now. But even still, you think, like, you yearn for the good old days when student-athletes were really student-athletes and they put academics first. And Exactly. And he didn't condone the cheating, but he also didn't decry it and stood with his players when they tried to get him back. So ultimately, the alumni and even Bill Grimm himself convinced the team to play. And, of course, they won. They beat Cal 14-7 to and finished the season undefeated. But following that season, he was fired by Henry Cesalo, the same guy who in 1915, a mere year earlier, was like, no, please don't leave. But then he fired him, saying the chief function of the university is to train carriers, and Mr. Doby failed to perform his full share of this service on the football field. Therefore, we do not wish him to return. 
So the entire university, except for the student body and the team, basically turned against him after this. There was a night in December after the season ended when you know, it was announced that Dobie would be fired and he wouldn't be coming back and kind of this glorious era of Washington football would be over that a huge group of students, hundreds of students, gathered around his house. They visited his on-campus house and stood in his yard and chanted his name until he came out and then they applauded for three minutes straight, basically in honor of this football coach who is now departing. It was such a remarkable send-off for a guy that was so beloved by his players and his students, but really despised by society at large. To be fair, he did reach the pinnacle of his sport. He got to the East Coast, he signed with a big program, and he stayed there for 15 years. So he was ultimately recognized for his achievements. And, and by all accounts, he wasn't a bad guy. He was just kind of an asshole. He grew yeah, up orphan just... in, like Mon- in like Montana or Minnesota. Yeah, Minnesota, yeah. In Minnesota in the early 1900s, like, wouldn't you kind of be like a hardened asshole? Yeah, a little bit. But he also, a guy who came to mind, and maybe it's too simple a comparison, but to me, he sounds like Bill Belichick, where he doesn't have a lot of personality, uh, but he's an amazing coach, and he really knows how to work with people, and he needed a certain player to play for him. And the players that he did choose to play for him were some of the best in the country, and they just did not lose. Like losing was not an option. And that was the message that he sent from the beginning. He was hired because it was generally considered that nobody cared about Washington football. But if you think about Washington football now, the passion for the fan base has survived the addition of major pro sports into Seattle, into the Seattle area, which is not the case for a lot of teams. Early success really laid the groundwork for the fact that the program is still relevant today. We're on the Rainier Valley Athletic Club. Exactly. <laughs> but like, what, what was the coaching style? What kind of schemes did he like to draw up? One thing that I did see about uh, the schemes that he liked to run is that he liked, a lot of, liked to run a lot of trick plays. Um, he had one play called, that, that was called like the bunk play, which sounded like it involved like a series of direct handoffs that were meant to like serve as misdirection for the defense. So it sounded like he was kind of an innovative play caller it was said that when Coyle was the quarterback, he would bring just him to his house prior to day game, prior to game day, and they would sit in his house, and there would be newspaper clippings and diagrams all over the walls, and he would sit there and he would just talk at Coyle. He wouldn't say anything. Like Coyle wouldn't. It wasn't a dialogue. Coyle would just sit there and absorb, and Dobie would stand there and talk about what they were going to do, and then his concluding remarks would always be like, "Play like." you would die if you didn't win. Here's a description of, of his coaching style. It says his teams relied on the run, but he was an early innovator who embraced the pass, recruited speed, and pushed his players to pick up the tempo to wear out opponents. Same thing as the system. So it sounds like he was kind of an early proponent of taking advantage of the relative lack of conditioning that a lot of college football players probably had at the time. Is this something he said, the, I am always right, you are always wrong? Yes, that is. That was his mantra. Um, <laughs> See, that, that sounds about <laughs> as Belichick as it can. <laughs> um, well, another one of the quotes that he had, um, I'll try and find the exact thing just so I do it justice. Um, but he eventually left Cornell, the only period of, uh, 
uh, the only period of his football coaching career where he didn't have success was his final two years at Cornell. And he eventually quit at Cornell because of the lack of talent that he eventually had. Um, and he remarked that you can't win games with Phi Beta Kappas, assuming that I, uh, assuming that he was eventually being given a bunch of frat guys to play on his football team uh, who had a propensity to drink. Uh, and I would imagine that that did not go well with his uh, up-tempo, conditioning-heavy style of play. It might even be the exact opposite. Phi Beta Kappa is like an academic honor society. Ah, <laughs> well, there you go. All the, all the, we've got all these, pretty much he's saying, we've got all these nerds oh. for now. <laughs> but, so I was wrong. It wasn't frat guys. It was the nerds. I came to the Ivy League to coach football players, not nerds. What are you doing? <laughs> Academics. I mean, this is, the, this is the beginning of the end for Ivy League football when the nerds won out over Gil Doby. Yeah. And that's when it went downhill. Right after that, you kind of started to see some of the other major like Big Ten programs start to get on the scene and the dominance of the Ivy League start to fade away. It's because the nerds took over. People started caring about school, if you can imagine that. So my last thing, I want to uh, I want to cover the the story with the mayor a little bit more because it's actually called the peanut incident. And so only six weeks into the job is when this incident occurred. So Dobie was known as this lanky guy. He was tall. He was six feet. Um, and he was blocking the view of the mayor and the Seattle postmaster. And one of them said, sit down, you big bum. They started yelling at him. Uh, and he did not respond uh, because he did not appreciate being talked to in such a manner. But then the two started throwing peanuts at him. They started throwing peanut shells at Dobie. And he still did not respond. And so they did this for apparently like a long time. Like they just continued to throw their peanut shells at him. And eventually he turned around and just unleashed like a searing tirade of words at them because he apparently could cuss like a sailor. And it eventually ended up making the local newspaper and the councilman sent a uh, letter to the university president saying, we do not recommend this guy as your football coach. So six weeks into his career, he almost had it ended because he was too stubborn to sit down at a football game. Um, so I feel like all of this kind of gives a pretty good description of the type of guy that he was. Something I love is that sometimes we get this sense that like people a hundred years ago were much more sophisticated than us or, you know, were good upright gentlemen you know the way that we think of maybe like british nobles or something like that like we almost right. assign that same sort of sophistication to them <laughs> but we fail to realize and it's stories like this that remind us that they were just as petty and just as silly and just as weird as we are now they're the same people they just yeah. used weird old-timey dialogue yeah, it just took a different form. 